September 21st, 1976. On the rainy streets of Washington, D.C., 44-year-old Orlando Letelier drove his Chevy Chevelle to his office like any normal morning. With him were two colleagues, Michael and Ronnie Moffitt, a young couple who had only been married for four months. The three worked for a progressive think tank called the Institute for Policy Studies. Since assuming his position there, Letelier, a Chilean national, had used IPS as a weapon against Augusto Pinochet, pressing Washington to sanction the Chilean dictator for human rights violations. For Letelier, the mission was personal. He was living in exile, thrown out of his home country after Pinochet took control three years earlier. And with each passing day, the target on Letelier's back grew bigger and bigger. As the Chevelle cruised through Sheridan Circle, all of a sudden, the three heard a beeping sound. And then... The car exploded, killing Letelier and Ronnie Moffat. Michael Moffat miraculously survived. The assassination of Orlando Letelier shocked the world. But what many didn't know was that it was just one of many targeted killings by South America's dictators. Dictators who belonged to an initiative known as Operation Condor. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. Today we begin our dive into the life and reign of the ruthless autocratic Chilean ruler, General Augusto Pinochet. From 1973 to 1990, Pinochet ruled Chile like a tyrant. By the time he left office, tens of thousands were missing or dead. And it was all done with the awareness of United States intelligence. This week, we'll explore how the ambitious Pinochet climbed the ranks of the military and unexpectedly came into power with a little help from the CIA. Next week, we'll discuss the growing backlash against the iron-fisted despot and how the power of the people led to his downfall. We'll dive into the rise of Augusto Pinochet right after this. Take something iconic, like the all-electric 2024 Fiat 500e. Add something electrica. Bring the swagger. And an Italian icon is remixed and ready to drop with its available premium JBL audio system. Tap the banner to learn more. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA, used under license by FCA US LLC. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the latter half of the 20th century, 
Over 10 million Chileans lived each and every day in perpetual fear of Augusto Pinochet. Under his regime, over 40,000 men and women were systemically imprisoned, tortured, murdered, or never seen again. In fact, over 3,000 Chileans were killed or made to disappear. Over 1,000 of those have never been found. Pinochet's sole mission was to eliminate any form of socialism. For a brief period in the early 1970s, Chile was run by a socialist, and Pinochet vowed to never let it happen again. Even if it meant 17 years of repression and death. Unlike other dictators in this series, Augusto Pinochet never showed any ambition to obtain political power. In fact, for the first 57 years of his life, Pinochet was a career military officer. Historically, the Chilean military had operated somewhat separately from the government. Many officers detested politicians who they considered corrupt. At certain points in Chilean history, civilians considered the military as the guardians of democracy more so than politicians. But this adoration was apparently reserved only for officers. The common soldier was looked upon with disdain. In Pamela Constable and Arturo Valenzuela's book, A Nation of Enemies, Chile Under Pinochet, one retired colonel notes, there was a palpable lack of understanding and contact between the two worlds. People loved parades, but politicians mocked us as little toy soldiers. We suffered great economic hardships and it caused much resentment. Perhaps it was one of these parades that ultimately drew the young Pinochet to military life. Growing up in the coastal town of Valparaíso, 70 miles from the Chilean capital of Santiago, he dreamed of being a soldier. And with encouragement of his mother, he joined the officer training school at a military academy in 1932 when he was 16. By most accounts, Pinochet was just an average student. Nothing during his studies hinted at a brilliant military strategist. What set him apart, though, was his dedication to the minutiae of being a soldier, the details, the order, the discipline. And by the time he graduated as a second lieutenant in 1936, he realized that the military was his calling. In his own words, he wrote that a soldier must assume great obligations his first duty is to renounce life and material possessions as the fatherland demands. So Pinochet devoted the rest of his life to the military. As the years went by, he climbed the ranks, receiving promotion after promotion. Before long, he'd embraced the Chilean officer's ideology and became detached from the political concerns of the very people he was supposed to protect. Soon, there would be no political group he despised more than leftists. His first interaction with socialists was in 1939, overseeing earthquake relief in the town of Concepcion. Many of the socialists he encountered were well-educated and cultured. It soon became obvious that they considered military officers nothing more than dumb soldiers. For the first time in his life, Pinochet felt intellectually inferior and unsophisticated. The inferiority complex only grew as the years went by. In 1948, the Communist Party was outlawed in Chile, and Pinochet, by then a captain, 
was assigned to command a prison camp full of communist activists. In conversation with some of these prisoners, Pinochet actually learned about Marx, and he respected Marx's desire for social justice. However, he saw the actual party members as nothing more than agitators seeking to divide the poor and working class from the rest of society. His contempt towards Marxists would later be described by American ambassador David Popper as evangelical and self-righteous. Unfortunately for Pinochet, as he quietly moved further to the right, his country was moving further to the left, setting the stage for a clash between the citizens and the military. Throughout the 1950s, a new generation of leftists started to form in Chile. College students and working-class activists became frustrated with the sluggish economy that left the rural areas of the country impoverished. The movement got a shot in the arm in 1959, when Fidel Castro and Che Guevara successfully overthrew Vulgencio Batista in Cuba. With each passing year, leftists were determined to transform Chile into the next Latin American socialist paradise. And the man leading that charge was physician-turned-politician Salvador Allende. Allende was the antithesis of the fatigue-wearing, cigar-smoking Latin American freedom fighter. He more closely resembled a college professor, sipping expensive scotch and musing on how to create a peaceful socialist revolution. What made Allende popular were his oratorical skills and his ability to unite all wings of the left, including the socialists and the reviled communists. And as his popularity grew, he drew the ire of the United States. In 1964, Allende made his third attempt at a presidential run. However, the U.S. decided to tip the scales. The CIA secretly spent $4 million to fund the campaign of Allende's opponent, Eduardo Frey. And an additional $3 million was spent on anti-Allende propaganda in general. Frey ultimately won, and the U.S. breathed a sigh of relief. To many, especially among the poor and working class, the Frey presidency was a disappointment. They felt forgotten by the new administration. By 1969, there was a call for Allende to run again. And the fourth time was the charm. In the September 1970 election, Allende received just over 36% of the vote, indicating that he had won a plurality among the three candidates running. Since it wasn't a majority, though, Congress would choose between the two frontrunners. Historically, they simply voted in favor of the candidate who received the most popular votes. And in 1970, that would mean siding with Allende. But U.S. President Richard Nixon wasn't about to let that happen. Nixon knew he had until the end of October, when the Chilean Congress cast their votes to try and stop Allende from winning. And no tactics were off the table. On September 15, 1970, about a week after the Chilean election, Nixon met with National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger, CIA Director Richard Helms, and Attorney General John Mitchell to discuss how to prevent Allende's ascension. This included spending $10 million to initiate a military coup. 
The U.S. knew about the Chilean military's reputation as the keepers of democracy and had been funding the military for years. Perhaps they could play into the military's fears of socialist authoritarianism and sway them to step in. Early signs, though, indicated that the military didn't want to play ball. Three days before Nixon declared his covert war on Chile, Ambassador Edward Corey wrote to the State Department that he was certain the military would refuse to cooperate in a coup. A few weeks later, on September 25th, Corey sent another cable to Kissinger, reaffirming that nothing had changed. He wrote, I am convinced that we cannot provoke a coup and that we should not run the risks simply to have another Bay of Pigs. But the CIA refused to take no for an answer. They went about creating a plan to sow dissonance via propaganda and search for military officers who might collaborate. Unfortunately, they faced a roadblock in the form of Commander-in-Chief of the Chilean Army, René Schneider. Schneider openly advocated for the peaceful democratic transfer of power, according to the Constitution, and many of his disgruntled officers refused the CIA's offers. Realizing that General Schneider was the major obstacle, the CIA simply decided to take him out of the picture. With the help of Chilean officers, they devised a scheme to kidnap Schneider. Then, a U.S.-backed military junta could establish order and prevent Allende from being inaugurated. On October 22, 1970, General Schneider was driving through the streets of Santiago. Suddenly, his car was ambushed. Schneider instinctively reached for his sidearm and shot at his attackers. The attackers fired back, striking Schneider three times, wounding him brutally. The kidnapping was a failure, but Schneider was out of the picture. He would succumb to his injuries three days later. The reaction to the assassination wasn't what the United States had anticipated. The people of Chile were outraged that such an act of violence would occur in the streets of Santiago days before Congress was supposed to vote on the president. It was clearly politically motivated. A groundswell of support for the democratically elected winner, Salvador Allende, swept through the country and through Congress. On October 24, 1970, the Chilean Congress confirmed Allende as president. Ten days later, he was sworn into office, becoming the first socialist elected president in Chile. Neither the United States nor 55-year-old Augusto Pinochet were pleased with the outcome. And in a few short years, they would become willing partners in a military coup that set the stage for 17 years of dictatorship. Coming up, the coup of 1973. Now back to the story. In the fall of 1970, Salvador Allende made history as the first socialist ever to be democratically elected to the office of president. A relatively peaceful transfer of power showed detractors that a leftist could seize power without firing a bullet. But not everyone was thrilled that Allende was in power. The United States was thwarted in their efforts to stop the socialist, and for many in the Chilean military, including 55-year-old General Augusto Pinochet, they felt personally threatened. As Allende celebrated his victory in the streets, Pinochet waved and smiled, at least feigning solidarity during the transfer of power. 
but deep down he was facing an internal struggle. Pinochet himself wrote that, with great bitterness, we men of arms watched the road Chile had taken, and we felt that desperation of impotence. As a soldier sworn to protect the fatherland, I felt inhibited from acting because the instigator of chaos was the very government to which I owed obedience. To that end, Pinochet kept his anti-Marxist opinions to himself and continued serving faithfully. When Allende asked him to command the garrison in Santiago, Pinochet accepted. He watched quietly as his country was transformed, first for the better and then quickly for the worse. The United States' inability to stop Allende was an embarrassing blunder for Nixon. Two days after Allende was sworn in, Nixon's National Security Council formulated a new strategy to topple the Chilean president. In a declassified memo dated November 6, 1970, Nixon explicitly told the council, no impression should be permitted in Latin America that they can get away with this, that it's safe to go this way. All over the world, it's too much the fashion to kick us around. We cannot fail to show our displeasure. Destabilization became their plan. First, economically. The United States immediately slashed aid to Chile. At its peak in 1967, the U.S. gave Chile over $200 million annually. Now, that would be cut to only $3 million. Coinciding with this was the CIA's covert operation to challenge Allende's credibility. According to a November 25th memo by Henry Kissinger, the operation was to include five elements. One, political action to divide and weaken the Allende coalition. Two, maintaining and enlarging contacts in the Chilean military. Three, providing support to non-Marxist opposition groups. Four, using Chilean media outlets to speak out against the Allende government and five, falsely accusing the Soviets and Cubans of interfering in the Chilean election. Unfortunately, during the first six months of Allende's presidency, these efforts yielded little success because the socialist paradise Allende had promised was actually coming to fruition. Almost instantly, Allende added thousands of jobs to the workforce by nationalizing certain industries, like the copper mines. On top of that, he ordered these new government jobs to dramatically increase wages. People who used to live in shacks suddenly had the money to buy a house. Many among the poor and working class finally felt recognized. From the factory workers to the peasants in the countryside, these men and women, for the first time, weren't being treated like second-class citizens. There was unity and equality in Chile, and it was all thanks to Salvador Allende. But by the end of 1971, the cracks in this paradise started to show. Allende's popular unity party didn't hold a majority in Congress, and they were constantly at odds with the opposition parties when it came to the socialist agenda. So Allende implemented his programs through decrees that pushed the boundaries of legality and fed into the fears of a totalitarian rule. And while his policies helped the working class, they alienated the rich. He nationalized the banks, 
expropriated more land than his predecessor and replaced factory managers with political allies. In response, the Chilean business elite took their money and their businesses elsewhere. And with the government takeover of so many industries, it's possible that competent managers were replaced by idealistic party officials who had little experience in turning a profit and even less enthusiasm for learning. Production ground to a halt. Wages decreased in value because of inflation. By the end of 1972, food lines were forming along the streets of Santiago. Within a year, common people had gone from praising Allende's name to cursing it. And Nixon was loving every minute of it. Seeing how quickly Chile had fallen into degradation, the CIA seized the opportunity. During the early 1970s, the CIA pumped close to $2 million into running anti-Allende propaganda in a right-wing Chilean newspaper, El Mercurio. According to internal CIA memos, El Mercurio played a vital role in sowing dissent towards the Allende regime. And as that dissent grew louder, the U.S. knew it was finally time to enact a military coup. The two questions were, how soon would it happen, and who would lead it? The CIA was first introduced to General Augusto Pinochet as a disgruntled military officer in the summer of 1971. But despite Pinochet's anti-Allende sentiments, he was considered too timid to lead a coup himself. This same frustration applied to the entire Chilean military. The U.S. was more than ready to support a military coup, and yet it seemed no one had the courage to accept the offer. Even though by the middle of 1973, the Chilean people were practically begging for the military to save them from Allende. Even the Chilean Congress was getting frustrated. On August 22, 1973, the Chamber of Deputies, the lower house, declared that Allende and his government had acted unconstitutionally. Among the 20 accusations, the Congress claimed that Allende had illegally confiscated private property, censored the press, supported armed guerrilla groups, and usurped power belonging to the judiciary, Congress, and the Treasury. They demanded that the military step in and save the country. Three of the nation's most senior officers finally decided to take action. Air Force General Gustavo Lee, Navy Admiral Jose Toribio Marino, and General Cesar Mendoza of the State Police. Notably missing from the cabal was Augusto Pinochet. Though he was aware of the plot, he knew he couldn't participate yet. Much of this had to do with the fact that on August 23rd, the day after the Chamber of Deputies resolution, Allende had appointed Pinochet as Commander-in-Chief of the Army. Pinochet assured Allende that he was loyal to the Constitution. He may have despised the president's politics, but he swore an oath to fatherland, and he wasn't going to break it. Unfortunately, though, the conspirators either needed Pinochet's support or to remove him as an obstacle. On September 9th, Gustavo Lee interrupted a birthday party for Pinochet's daughter to discuss the need for military action. What exactly was said between the two is unknown. But during their argument, Admiral Marino sent Pinochet a message asking for support. He made it clear to the commander that the only way to save Chile 
was if all branches of the military united. It was now or never. By the time Lee left the house, Pinochet had officially, but reluctantly, signed off on the coup. It was set to take place in two days. When the CIA learned that the coup was finally greenlit, they planned for a U.S. military intervention if things should go south. Luckily for them, it wasn't necessary. At 6 a.m. on September 11, 1973, the military cut off all the telephone lines in Santiago, except for one, which allowed the generals to speak directly to Allende. Starting with Pinochet's hometown of Valparaiso, cities around Chile began to fall into military hands, and more soldiers were headed directly towards Santiago. When word reached Allende, he decided not to go out without a fight. With an AK-47 in hand, the 65-year-old president headed to La Moneda, the presidential palace. With a small garrison of loyal troops, he broadcast a message to the people, promising to defend the government until the end. Outside the city, the conspirators, including Pinochet, set up base camps and monitored the progress. Eventually, they were able to get a message to Allende, resign and we will fly you out of Chile peacefully. Allende refused. That was it then. Pinochet gave his fellow conspirators new orders. Unconditional surrender, no dialogue. According to some reports, the military then began arresting Allende supporters or known Marxists throughout Santiago. In response, leftist guerrilla forces took up arms of their own. Soon, La Moneda was surrounded. The police set up roadblocks throughout the city, making it impossible for anyone to reach the palace. Pinochet broadcast a radio message urging civilians to stay home and not risk their own lives. When Allende discovered who was behind the attacks, he finally realized the gravity of the situation. He allegedly said under his breath, traitors. Knowing the end was near, Allende reportedly ordered any documents with the names of his supporters to be burned. He knew the military would round them up and execute them. Hopefully, he could save some of their lives. At around 9.30 a.m., Allende delivered his own radio message condemning the leaders of the coup. He signed off proclaiming, Long live Chile. Long live the people. Long live the workers. It was his final speech. Not long after, Pinochet ordered his men to open fire on La Moneda. For the next several hours, the palace became a battleground, with fighter jets and tanks bombing and shelling the walls. During breaks in the violence, some of Allende's security forces, as well as family and friends, surrendered. But Allende refused. Just before 2 p.m., soldiers stormed La Moneda and rounded up the final fighters, including Allende. But Allende, who was last in line, managed to sneak away from his captors. He grabbed his AK-47, put it under his own chin, and fired. The coup was complete. The military junta was officially in control of Chile. And the man in charge was the one who signed on to the coup at the last possible second, Augusto Pinochet. Coming up, 
Pinochet consolidates power, enacting a U.S.-approved reign of terror. Now back to the story. On September 11, 1973, the socialist experiment in Chile came to a bloody end. Within hours of taking control of the presidential palace, the military announced they were disbanding Congress and suspending the Constitution. Chile would now be run by a military junta. The four leaders were, of course, Pinochet, Gustavo Lee, José Toribio Marino, and César Mendoza, representing the Army, Air Force, Navy, and State Police, respectively. The four would rotate terms as president, starting with the most senior member among the four, 57-year-old Augusto Pinochet. The immediate response to the coup from the upper classes and business elite was one of elation. From their perspective, the military had done their duty and saved them from a socialist dictator. For the United States, which had spent years sowing chaos in Chile, the reaction was a big sigh of relief. It's likely that everyone at the White House, from Nixon on down, was thrilled that Allende was gone. The mission now was to make it clear that the U.S. wasn't directly involved in the coup, which technically was true. However, the amount of money the CIA pumped into the propaganda project certainly helped shape public opinion against Allende. And in a September 16th White House recording, both Nixon and Kissinger explicitly acknowledged that the U.S. created the conditions for the coup to take place. To that end, the United States waited until 22 other countries had recognized the junta before they did it themselves. It was no secret that the U.S. hated Allende. A quick recognition might draw suspicion about their role in the coup. Instead, they wanted to maintain their image as simple champions of democracy. Meanwhile, back in Chile, the public quickly began to see what exactly was in store for them now that the junta was in charge. And for the bourgeois and the technocrats who'd been public enemies during the Allende years, it was an unfettered capitalist paradise. The junta turned to a group of young University of Chicago-educated Chilean economists to rejuvenate the failing economy. The Chicago boys, as they were called, were given carte blanche to run Chile's economy as they saw fit. For middle and upper-class businessmen, it was a welcome relief. But for everyone else, the early days of a junta were a taste of the 17 years of terror that lay in store. The goal of the new administration was obvious. Suppress any and all memory of Marxist thought. Schools and universities suddenly saw soldiers on their campuses. Classes no longer taught anything that could be perceived as leftist. Liberal arts were essentially erased. Instead, there was a strict emphasis on technical studies, like science and mathematics. The junta also took control of the media. Radio and television programs broadcast pro-junta propaganda that instilled fear into anyone who'd ever said one nice thing about Marxism. Neighbors, families, and friends became suspicious of one another. One wrong word to the wrong person could make them disappear. The violence and horror that would grip Chile for almost the next two decades started the day the tanks rolled down the streets of Santiago on September 11th. And in the weeks that followed the coup, the bloodshed intensified. 
roughly 20 detention centers were quickly established. The two most infamous were sports stadiums in Santiago, where prisoners were tortured and executed. Most of the people arrested during the raids were political activists, union workers, former Allende party officials, and the poor. And in many cases, their deaths or disappearances were never officially recorded and were denied by authorities. The violence was so severe that in the first few weeks, the CIA couldn't even provide an estimate of how many civilians had been killed. In late October, they finally guessed that over 13,000 people had been arrested. How many died was, and still is, unknown. The early violence culminated in the mid-October Caravan of Death. Between October 16th and 19th, General Sergio Ariano Stark, along with five others, toured through the Chilean countryside on a crusade of murder. In four days, they traveled by helicopter to four towns and beat, tortured, and bayoneted political prisoners. By the time they were finished, at least 68 people were dead. Their bodies were thrown into unmarked graves, forcing their families to mourn without a proper burial. And it was all done on Pinochet's orders. When the CIA learned about this, they justified it as part of the junta's mission to neutralize extremists. Though, as Peter Kornblue, author of The Pinochet File, notes, most victims of the caravan of death were upstanding civic officials and well-known members of their communities. For Pinochet, the violence was a means to an end. Call it cowardice or self-preservation or respect for democratic order, but during Allende's years, Pinochet had kept his mouth shut about his hatred of Marxism. Now that he was in power, though, he wasn't going to let anyone shut him up. In fact, as blood was spilled in the Chilean jungles, Pinochet came to realize that he liked being in charge. For the first time in his life, he answered to no one. And if he wanted to maintain that power, he'd have to get his three co-leaders out of the way. With the army firmly in his corner, no one would be able to stop him. In June 1974, less than a year after the coup, Pinochet passed the decree law 527. The law named him Supreme Chief of Chile, making him the indefinite leader. By the end of the year, Pinochet had proclaimed his title as President of the Republic. Only General Gustavo Lee, head of the Air Force, openly objected to Pinochet's grab for power. But realizing he was greatly outnumbered, he acquiesced. With absolute power firmly established, Pinochet went about expanding his reign of terror. In June 1974, the Dirección de Inteligencia Nacional, or DINA, was established as Chile's official secret police force. Leading the DINA was Lieutenant Colonel Juan Manuel Contreras, a favorite of Pinochet's. Under Contreras, DINA scoured Chile, looking not just for Marxists, but anyone who wasn't loyal to Pinochet. Systematic raids in towns, villages, and cities resulted in the disappearance of thousands. In no time at all, DINA secured its place as the major political force in Chile. One informant would later say, there are three sources of power in Chile, Pinochet, God, and Dina. 
While the vast majority of the public grew to fear Dina, the agency's inner machinations were entirely a mystery. However, one organization may have known exactly how it operated and how it could be put to larger use, the CIA. In the fall of 1975, Contreras called a secret meeting with other South American military intelligence leaders to discuss plans for what was described as their own version of Interpol. But instead of policing crimes, it would crack down on leftist subversion. By the end of the meeting, Chile, Argentina, Paraguay, Bolivia, and Uruguay had all agreed to share information on subversives in their countries. The operation was called Condor, after the bird. And for many years, it would become emblematic of state-sponsored terrorism. The extent of U.S. participation in Condor has never been fully confirmed. But based on declassified information, we know that the U.S. opened a communication channel with Condor members, likely passing off intel they had on leftist agitators in South America. This made it much easier to coordinate suppression, not just in Chile, but across the whole continent. Assassinations were a major tactic used by Condor, many of which took place in Argentina, which in the months after the coup is exactly where many Chileans had fled. But one of Condor's most infamous assassinations involved a Chilean not in Argentina, but the United States. And the consequences would be felt for years. During the 1973 coup, Defense Minister Orlando Letelier was one of the first Allende cabinet officials to be arrested and tortured. International pressure forced the junta to free Letelier, but he was forced to leave Chile. He eventually made his way to Washington, D.C. and began an aggressive anti-Pinochet lobbying campaign. The CIA kept close tabs on Letelier especially as he began making inroads with members of Congress. When the word got to Pinochet that Letelier was gaining traction in Washington, he was furious. Letelier needed to be silenced sooner rather than later. So in the summer of 1976, Pinochet devised a plan to assassinate him. Using the web of Condor connections, Pinochet and Contreras sent a team of assassins to Washington, D.C., by way of Paraguay. Among them was an American expatriate named Michael Townley. Townley had become one of Contreras's favorite assassins. In 1974, he had used a car bomb to murder General Carlos Prats, the commander-in-chief of the army under Allende. A year later, Dina, and likely Townley, tried to kill Bernardo Leighton, a prominent politician who was living in exile in Rome. Leighton survived the bullets, but they left him with permanent brain damage. When this new mission came along, Contreras thought Townley was the perfect man for the job. On September 21, 1976, Orlando Letelier was driving through D.C. with his associates, Michael and Ronnie Moffat. As they made their way through the Sheridan Circle, their car exploded from a bomb Townley had attached underneath. Michael Moffat survived the blast only because he was in the back seat. Letelier and Ronnie Moffat weren't so lucky. For Augusto Pinochet, the successful assassination of Orlando Letelier 
proved that his reach could be felt not just in Chile or South America, but all over the world. With the help of Operation Condor, he could kill any agitator, anytime, anywhere. But the international response to Letelier's murder would be far more severe than he expected. Not only was it obvious that Letelier was targeted by the Chilean government, but Pinochet himself came under scrutiny as the one who ordered the hit. Pinochet had just put the entirety of Operation Condor in jeopardy. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the rocky relationship between Pinochet and the U.S. in the wake of the Letelier assassination and how the will of the people led to Pinochet's downfall. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs> <laughs>